So you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1 and then uh, put a finger in Joshua chapter 2. We're in a series titled A Crazy Christmas Reunion. And in this series, we're looking at several of the crazy people and stories that are found in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And the genealogy, admittedly, is not the most exciting thing to read, is it? But it is important because it shows why the Old Testament is important, why, why Jesus is coming out or how Jesus is coming out of the Old Testament. And so the, there's many of the themes and many of the ideas about Jesus that are first portrayed in the Old Testament that we learn as we study that, as we study the genealogy. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, and then also Joshua chapter 2, which story, tells the story of uh, Rahab. Back in 2015, the Huffington Post put out an article uh, about a church in Honolulu. It was a good article. Uh, that was a church called Bell, a Blue Water Mission. And this church uh, started a restaurant called Seed. And Seed gives people a second chance at work and at life. And so the article focused on a woman named Mary Nelson. Mary started working at, the C- at Seed the year before the article. And so it was only her second job as a 53-year-old. And so at the age of 14, the article says, Nelson's mother committed suicide, and so she started working on the streets of New York City as a prostitute. At the age of 18, she tried to start a new life in Hawaii, and so she went over there, but she kept returning the prostitution to make a living. And it was not until she was in her early 50s that some Christians at Blue Water Mission convinced her to leave the streets and to try working at Seed. And so when she got there, she spent her first six months just in the back washing dishes because she didn't want to be around other people. But eventually, through the love of, the, of the, the church there, Nelson grew and got to the point where she began helping others there. And so she said in the article that she makes in a month at Seed what she used to in one night in her previous job. But at, that sa- at the same time, though, she said that it was worth it because she has become someone new, someone that she never thought was possible. And so the article ends by talking about a mission trip that she went on to the Philippines with her church. And there she ministered to other prostitutes. And she told reporters this. She said, I want those women to know there's hope. You can change. There are people out there that really want to help. And you've got to believe. And Mary Nelson's life was, was changed through the love of other Christians and the love of Jesus Christ. In turning to Jesus, she found new hope and new life. And in the story that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see something similar happen. But the story of Rahab is really not a story about prostitution. It's a story about a sinful, hopeless person finding forgiveness and hope through God. And even though none of us may have ever been involved in anything similar to Rahab, but we, like Rahab, 
have similar, are similar in the sense that we are all sinners. And the hope that Rahab found is the same hope that every one of us can find as well. And so let's go ahead and let's take a look at this, what I call a not-so-Christmassy Christmas story and see what we can learn. And so let me read Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of, uh, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David, the king. So here we go. So we have Rahab going to all the way to King David. Now we've moved from Tamar in verse 3, and we've gone down several generations to verse 5. Not much information is given about Rahab in this passage in Matthew chapter 1, other than that we know that she's the mother of Boaz, who would be the one who would marry Ruth in in the book of Ruth. Then after Ruth is Jesse, the father of David. And so at first glance, if you were just to read this, you would think that Rahab must have come from a very prestigious line. Maybe she was the daughter of a wealthy king or a prominent family. After all, she's the great-great-grandmother of King David. But that would be very, very, very far from the truth. So to learn more about Rahab, we need to turn back to Joshua chapter 2. And the book of Joshua is about the Israelites preparing and then going into the promised land into Canaan. Their leader Moses had died at the end of Exodus, and they, uh, or at the, uh, uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, I believe. Um, and so their leader Moses had died, and now Joshua was leading them. Joshua was in charge at the beginning of the book. And the Israelites had struggled for over a generation to get to this point at the, where they were at, at the promised land, to go in. But that was because of their own sin. And as Joshua prepares to advance into the promised land, he sends two spies to check things out. In Joshua, this is Joshua 2.1, and Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly into Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So the spies leave what I, call, what, what I think of as the horribly named town of Shittim and uh, cross over the Jordan. You can see where they started out, and then that, the, the Jordan is directly across from them. And then uh, right across from the Jordan, you can see on the map, is Jericho. So it would make sense that Joshua would tell the spies to check out Jericho, because it was nearby. But... How would a foreigner get into Jericho without arousing suspicion? Well, they would go to a house where a lot of outsiders would go. And that would be what happened in verse 1, continuing in verse 1. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. The language makes it very clear that the spies went to Rahab's home, 
but they didn't engage in any sinful activity with Rahab. However, at some point, the people of the town figure out what these men are doing, that they're spying on them. And so, verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So now we have a chase scene, right? Verse 3, then the king said to Jericho, or then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men whom, you, whom have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So they're caught, or are they? Verse 4, but the, women had taken, uh, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the women came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when, they, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Verse 6, but she brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them. On the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Rahab, the prostitute, lies to protect the spies. And I read about sort of this idea of lying and whether it was justified. Were they okay in lying? After all, aren't we told that we should tell the truth? So what's with Rahab lying? And the bottom line is that Scripture commends Rahab for her faith. But it never says really one way or the other if her lying was okay. Uh, However, I did read some other people point out that this was a military campaign. And in the midst of military, uh, there's deception that happens. Uh, There were a number of times where Israel deceived other towns and other places when they tricked them to come out or did other things. And, and so in war, deception happens. Uh, and so now what are the Israelites doing? They're spying. Spying is a form of deception. It was also brought up that the uh, midwives in Exodus lied to protect all the, the Hebrew boys there. So was that okay that they lied? And uh, I asked a number of pastors, uh, Southern Baptist pastors, and, and asked them what they thought. And, and they were sort of, there, there was sort of two groups where some said uh, what they were doing was okay because they were protecting this horrible evil. And then others said, you should never, ever, ever lie. Nada, no, never. And God would have worked another way. And so uh, it seems to me and I can't say this with certainty. This is not from God. This is just my, my understanding of this. It seems to me that there's, based on these examples in the Bible, there's certain times where deception is allowed when it's preventing a horrible evil. So to save people, not to, not to get more money in your business, not to make you more popular, but to, in saving people in these examples. So uh, it's possible that that's okay, but again, Scripture doesn't say one way or the other about that particular instance. But let's think about this. Why in the world would Rahab 
protect the, 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 the spies when they're foreigners. So they're, they're, not, they're not from Jericho. So why is she lying to her people to protect the foreigners? Let's see, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For, you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and were beyond the Jordan and to Sihon and Og, uh, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord our God, he has... Uh, for the Lord your God, He has given in your, uh, He is God in heaven, in the heavens above, and on the earth beneath. Let's stop there. So Rahab heard about the Lord, and she believed in Him. But I want to point out, it's not that that she just heard about God; is that is that she heard and believed in God, and that's an important distinction that we need to recognize. Some others had likely heard about God. In fact, she says that others in the town had heard about him. They'd heard about what God had done. But Rahab heard, and it led to the actions that we're seeing in this passage. And this is what I call true faith. You see, true faith doesn't lead to just head knowledge. True faith produces action. It produces action. That's why the author of Hebrews, talking about Rahab, gives her as an example of faith. In Hebrews 11.31, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. James also mentions Rahab when writing about faith and works. And I'll read just the, the second part of this passage here. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it's not that James is saying that they were saved by their actions. Their actions didn't save them. James' point, James's point is that true faith produces right actions. And the same is true for us. This past week, my wife was preparing to go to the women's small group on Thursday evening. And she was sharing with me how there was a massive amount of laundry that had to be done. She didn't know how she was going to get to it because she was going to the small group. And so after she left, I decided to fold her laundry. Now, in full disclosure, I ordered all the kids downstairs, and I made them fold the laundry while I stood around like a taskmaster. But it got folded. But regardless, what led me to want to help out my wife, even if it was just me making my kids do it? And it was because I love her. And that love came out in my actions. And if I said I love my wife, 
and never did anything loving, what would you say then? You would say at the very least, something is wrong with that. And likewise, listen, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you believe in Jesus, but your actions are not showing it, then something is wrong. Because if God has truly saved you, and you have truly given him your life, then your actions should reflect that in some manner. Now, you're not going to act perfectly, but there's a big difference between a Christian who earnestly tries and messes up at times and a person who doesn't try at all. And so at some point, Rahab heard about God and believed in him, and that faith led her to act. And if you've heard the story of Rahab a number of times, it's easy to forget how much she is risking when she lies to, the, to her people to save the spies. And so one pastor and theologian, James Montgomery Boyce, he points out three things that Rahab was risking by lying to the people. So first of all, Rahab put her own life on the line. So there they are in Jericho, which was a military outpost. So what do you think would have happened to her if she had been caught lying? Not only would she have died, but she would have died a bad death, a very bad death. But even more than her own life, Rahab was essentially renouncing her past and her people. Because if the, if the spies were successful, then her own town was going to be destroyed. So in helping them, she was essentially becoming a traitor to her people. She was renouncing her way of life. But third, Rahab was identifying with the totally different people, with the Jewish people. So not only was she renouncing her people, but she was choosing to identify with a different group of people. But what she was doing here, that, or this was a total life change. This was a total reversal of her life. So she was risking a lot. Now let's go back to our passage. After Rahab protects the spies, she then asks them to spare her family, and the spies say that they will save her. She then lets them out of her window, which is along the wall of the, of the city. And just before they escape safely, she, uh, they, they tell her this. They say, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you, that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord on the, in the window through which, you will, through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all, the fa- and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. Skipping ahead to verse 21. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The scarlet cord. Now what? Yeah, scarlet. There you go. So what color is scarlet? It's red. Yeah. And so the spies here, track with me. The spies tell her 
to put the scarlet cord out the window so that they will know which area to keep safe. Let me ask you, does the idea of putting red around an opening of a house sound familiar? It's Passover. It's Passover. When the angel of death was about to go into Egypt and to kill all the firstborn, the Israelites were told to brush the blood of a lamb over their doorway. And it was this blood there that the angel would pass, because of the blood, the angel would pass over that house and not destroy that house or the firstborn in that house. And Passover was an Old Testament picture of what Jesus Christ would do for us. Because those who believe in Jesus are taking his blood and painting it over our life. And when we do that, death, spiritual death, passes over us. And so it's no stretch to say that the story of Rahab is a story of us as well. Who was Rahab? Was Rahab some bigwig or some important person? No, she was the least important person in the entire city. She had all sorts of things going against her. For example, Rahab was a woman. Now that sounds very sexist in mo- to, to modern ears. But in first century Middle East, women had very few rights. But not only was she a woman, but Rahab was a Gentile. Meaning she was not Jewish. She was a foreigner to God's people. But wait, there's more. Even worse, she was an Amorite. And there were a number of different people groups in Canaan. But uh, among all the different people groups, I read that the Amorites were a particularly wicked group of people. And so they were so corrupt and, and known for their corruption that they would sacrifice children during religious practices. But even more, if that weren't bad enough, Rahab was also a prostitute. And so up until this point, she had been involved in a boatload of immorality. And so she had done many bad things, and she had likely had many bad things done to her. Let's pause there for a moment. I want to tell you about when I was in elementary school. And I attended uh, a Christian elementary school. And at the end of the year, each school year, they would give an award to people. They'd give out a number of awards. And one of them was called the Christian Citizenship Award. And this was for the nicest, highest character, best behaved person in the school. And so guess who got it? Not me. Because apparently class clowns with low GPAs are not in the target group of the Christian Citizenship Award. And there's some irony now that crazy class clown Kyle stands before you as a pastor. But listen, there's even more irony in the fact that sinful Rahab was the one person to turn to God in that city. God saved, listen, God saved a female, Gentile, Amorite prostitute 
And even more, God arranged it so that she was the great-great-grandmother of King David and in the family line of Jesus Christ. But the beauty is not, is, is not that this, or, but the beauty of this is that this is not a one-time thing. Because the good news of Jesus is that anyone, no matter their past, no matter what they've done, no matter what has been done to them, no matter their lack of importance, anyone can come to Jesus. And if God redeemed a, a vile sinner like Rahab, then he can redeem you too. Adoniram Judson is well known among missionary circles. He was the first Protestant missionary uh, to Burma, uh, going there at the age of 25, and then translating the Bible into their language. And he didn't start out, though, as a devout Christian. He was raised in, in a Christian home. His father was a pastor. But when Adoniram went to college, he began spending a lot of time with an atheist friend named Jacob Eames. And he spent so much time with him that he was convinced that God didn't exist. And so at the age of 20, he returned home and he declared to his Christian family and pastor father that he no longer was a Christian, that he was an atheist. And then Adoniram then moved to New York to pursue becoming a famous actor. And for a while, that's what he did. So he joined a group of actors. He traveled to different states, performing in shows, and really just going and pursuing his own passions. But one night, while he was staying at an inn, the walls were very thin, and he could hear someone in the next room in pain and despair. And he thought that that man in there is dying. And that made him, as he listened to the sounds of death, so to speak, that made him think about his own life. Was he ready to die? But then he thought to himself that his friend Jacob, if he could hear his thoughts now, he would be mocking him and laughing at him if he knew what he was thinking. And so the next day, Adoniram was preparing to leave, and he asked the innkeeper, what happened to that poor old man that was next door? And the innkeeper told him that, that he had passed away during the night. But then the innkeeper added that he wasn't old. He was probably about your age, he told him. So Adoniram asked him what his name was. And the innkeeper replied that his name was Jacob Eames. And that led Adoniram down a path to eventually returning home, putting his faith in Jesus Christ, and then going overseas shortly after. And he rejected a life of pleasure, and he rejected all of that to pursue God. And so this sinful person who had rejected God was saved by God. In church, God saved Rahab God saved Adoniram, and he can save you too. And maybe you've turned away in your past, and you've wandered far away from him, but I want to encourage you, God is a God of second chances. And he is full 
of mercy and love. And so I want to encourage you to turn to him. So as I start to wrap up, uh, I want to point out another way that we're like Rahab. And so just like Rahab rejected a number of different things, we're called to reject similar things that Rahab did. And so as I showed you, Rahab put her life on the line. She renounced her own past and people, and she identified with the Jewish people. And really, in a, in a uh, broader way, th- these are the same things that we're called to do as well. You see, just like Rahab put her life on the line, we're called to die to ourselves. In turning to Jesus, we are dying to our old life. When we become a Christian, we are not who we used to be. Not because we're just trying to be someone different, but because Jesus has made us different. We are killing off the old flesh through Jesus. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Not redressed, not modified, not upgraded, crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're called to die in order to gain new life. Second, just as Rahab renounced her past and people, we're called to renounce our past and identity. In Christ, we have a new identity. And we're not who we used to be. But then finally, just as Rahab identified with the Jewish people, we're called to take on a new identity as well. John 1.12 But to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we're now children of God. Or in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That old stuff, that's passed away. Behold, the new has come. So listen, our heavenly citizenship is greater than any other citizenship that we have. It's greater than our American citizenship. And while we're called to be good citizens and we're called to love our neighbor, make no mistake, church. As Christians, our allegiance is ultimately to Christ, not to a country, not to a political party, and not to a president. And over the next year, we're going to be entering into another season where political passions are going to be getting high. And, and politics is important, so I would encourage you, yes, be involved in them. But remember, church, that God is not calling us to make America great. He's calling us to make Christ great in America and everywhere else. So may we not forget that over this next year. And in the story, Rahab is eventually saved, and she's made part of the Jewish people. 
She then marries and becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. But here's the cool thing. In getting rid of the old life, that we are given a new, better life, just like Rahab. In rejecting our old passions, we're given better passions. In taking on a new identity, we're given an even better identity as citizens of heaven. And so the trade-off, I would say, is worth it. And so I'm reminded of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And in the book, The Voyage of Don Treader, uh, in the book, The Voyage of Don Treader, I want to close with this. And uh, sound booth, I don't know what's happening back there, but all the slides are advancing. Um, there's a guy named Eustace, and he gets into trouble. Eustace uh, goes into a dragon's lair and starts putting on dragon's gold. And after he does that, he falls asleep, and when he falls asleep, he then wakes up and finds himself as a dragon. And at first, he likes the idea that he's a dragon, But over a period of time, he realizes that he doesn't have any friends, that dragons aren't so fun anymore. And so Eustace tries to peel off the dragon skin to become someone different. And every time he peels off a little bit of skin in the story, there's dragon skin underneath. And then the lion, Aslan, comes to him, and Aslan portrays a a Christ figure in this story. And I want to read to you Uh, what happens next to Eustace. And this is told by Eustace. Then the lion said, I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, but I can tell you, uh, but I I can, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And the only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun seeing it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff off, right off, And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd ever been. And then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on. And he threw me in the water, and uh, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. Listen, that's what God can do for every one of you if you'll give himself, if you'll give yourself to him. And so I want to encourage you that if you've never turned to him before, give him your life. Ask him to ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe some of you in the, have done that in the past, but have sh- struggled and have 
wandered far off, I want to encourage you. Today, let it be the day that you turn back to him and ask him. Say, say Lord, I, I've gone the wrong way, but I thank you that you are a God of mercy and of second chances and third and fourth. So let's go ahead and let's spend a moment now in prayer.